be damned if the same politicians who refused to act then are going to try to come back today. The real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the, in, in the principles and the goals that you're striving for. When the powerful use their position to bully others, we all lose. A system of justice will be the richer for diversity of background and experience. And correction. Hello, everybody. It's me, Miss Cracker. I'm here with my co-pilot, Caitlin, and it's time for She's a Woman. It's a podcast for every human being who looks into the mirror and says, she's a woman, and for the people that love them. Every week, we talk to incredible women of all kinds from all walks of life and invite them to share their stories with you, our incredible listeners. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. Caitlin, first of all, a trigger warning for our listeners. We should let everyone know that this episode is all about end-of-life care, about loss, about death. I believe that death can be a terrible experience, but I also think it can be a beautiful part of life's journey if we are lucky enough to be prepared when the time comes. Having said that, I know not everyone wants to hear a full-hour meditation on death. So, if you don't feel like it today, don't worry. We will be happy to have you back with us next week. Anyway, I know this is a huge, deep question, Caitlin, but I think it goes with our theme for today. You recently lost a grandparent, and I wondered if there, in all of that loss, was a moment that was joyous, something that allowed you to celebrate his life with your family. I mean, when your family came together to mourn, was there, like, some times of happiness? Okay, first of all, you're speaking very loudly this morning. I am? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I think my neighbors can hear. <laughs> They'll be able to hear this whole... Or maybe it's because you're sitting right next to me. Right next to Screaming in my ear. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, <laughs> yes, I recently lost uh, a grandfather. And honestly, with any death, it's kind of a mixed bag, right? So, you know, there's on the one hand, it's he was suffering for a while. And so there's a sort of collective relief in the family of like, well, he's not suffering anymore. You know, he kept right. saying he wanted to go home mm. during during his final days. Yeah. And then that night, my cousins and I all spent the night at his house. It, I I feel like there's you know two like multiple types of people and I there's a couple of the cousins that are like me that are like I just want to sit and cry the whole night and there is uh, some that are like God oh, let's have a toast to him and like yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. oh what a great man you know like yeah. they're sort of like more celebratory but you know it felt it feels therapeutic to sit and talk with people and hear their memories that maybe you had forgotten. So me and my cousins, we talked a lot about our childhood memories and just different conversations we had with him one-on-one that maybe the others never heard about. So yeah, I don't know if joyous is the right word. Right. But definitely like it wasn't like we were all sitting in a circle sobbing. You know what I mean? We Mm -hmm. were like uh, conversing and we were sad that we wasn't there. But I think the reason we decided to all spend the night there together and talk about him was to bring ourselves some joy and comfort in being with each other and telling stories instead of all sitting by ourselves at 
our separate houses or whatever and being sad, you know? Yeah. I didn't know what my answer for this was going to be. I left it blank and I was like, I felt like so many of the deaths in my family and in my circle of friends came as a surprise. I was like, I don't think there were any joyous moments. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm listening to you talk about different types of people, I'm thinking about when my I lost my aunt and it was so devastating to the whole family and it was very sudden. And the only thing that I remember that was a really comforting thing was that my sister stayed so focused the whole time and really took care of everybody's needs. She's just one of those kinds of people that snaps into care mode. Yeah. And so my happy or like pleasant memory is that even though everything was coming apart, she was like making pot after pot of tea for people so that they had a good drink to keep them going, as we say in our family. And just having that person there to be a caretaker when everything else seemed so out of whack really meant a lot to us. So I guess that's going to go with the theme today because we're going to talk about how to be prepared for these difficult times and how to find the best in them so that they're not a terrifying experience, you know? But before we dive into our serious groundbreaking interview, I have a little treat for you, Caitlin. Every week, we do a little segment called Here's the Good News, where we share positive stories torn from the headlines. The idea is that they'll bring you, our listeners, a little hope during these difficult times. And this week, our news is all about the perfect pants. Oh, I don't. This is a surprise for me. I don't I don't know this story. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually, when I started researching this story, I went from one article to another about it and then did this deep dive on the internet and ended up learning a lot about the patriarchy, let's say. Okay, okay. So here's the good news. Seven-year-old Cameron Gardner saw a problem with the world of fashion and decided to fix it. She noticed that a lot of girls' and women's jeans don't have real pockets. They have little fake ones that you can't get your hands into, you can't get your keys or phone into, and she thought it was time for a change. She wrote to Old Navy, her favorite clothing brand. Wait, you saw this too? I think I, I saw a tiny segment on it on the Today Show, of course. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So she wrote to Old Navy and they responded. Okay. So, Caitlin, can we talk about why women's pants don't have pockets. Why do you think they don't have pockets? Honestly, Um, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't realize that women's pants didn't have pockets either. I feel like when I think about pants, I think I feel like my jeans have pockets. Yeah. But I guess if you think about it, like she's saying, they are always smaller. Yep. They're not, they don't feel functional, even if you can kind of put your hand inside them. Exactly. There's not really, they're not really big enough for anything. Yeah. Yeah. According to Melina Flaviano, a survey of 80 pairs of men's and women's pants found that on average, the pockets in women's jeans are 48% shorter and 6.5% narrower than men's pockets, which is a lot. They're like half the size, the half the length. Yeah. I wonder, is it because we expect like women to wear tighter jeans so that the pockets can't take up? 
a lot of room <laughs> or right. something. I don't know. Well, Flabiano ties this to the very old and misogynistic idea that women's clothes should be fashionable and not functional. So I think mm. that goes to your idea that it has to be form fitting and yeah. you, you can't have if you can't have panty lines, you can't have pocket oh, lines. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. But she also ties it to the idea that to simplify Flaviano's words, women stay at home so they don't need pockets anyway, which was kind of the kind of the idea as men oh. were developing women's fashion like, you know, you don't go out in the world. Why do you need that? And if right, you, so it's like uh, centuries trickle down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so women were expected to carry um, early versions of the purse, right? Rather than uh, interrupt the yeah. When like any male you know like grabs their wallet, phone, and keys and like sticks it in their pocket, yeah. walks out the door. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. You're right. Hmm. So women weren't expected to do that, weren't allowed to do that. And now it's trickled down into women's fashion today. It's like, you know, whales have little legs, little back legs. Did you know that? No. Inside their body, like little tiny remaining from back when they used to have legs. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so it even though they've evolved to not need them anymore, they're still in there. And that's what happened with these <gasps> damn pockets. Uh, like the non-functional pocket has survived in women's pants through wow. evolution. Anyway, back to Cameron. She was just learning in school how to write persuasive letters. So instead of letting her in-school lessons stay in the classroom, she decided to apply them to the world around her. She thought she could use her new power of persuasion to influence a company, and she wasn't wrong. Old Navy responded with a kind note and a full collection of pants and shorts with real pockets as a commitment to listen to her voice. I love this story because it reminds us that we do have a voice if we decide to use it. I think sometimes there's a huge temptation to say, oh no, no one will listen to me, I may as well not say anything or even try. But Cameron didn't think that way. She saw something that mattered to her, spoke up, and thus gave herself a chance to be heard. I think this is truly amazing and something I'm going to keep in mind for myself. It's easy to be vocal on a mic, on a podcast, but I need to get out there more when it comes to protesting, demonstrating, letter writing, phone calls, and so on, trying to make the world a better place. But yeah, I thought this is this is really great. And obviously, smart girl. And on this podcast, we love smart, bold women. It's true. No matter how old or no young. No matter how old or young. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Even old women like me, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> like both of us now. Yeah, old ladies. Oh, God. <laughs> anyway, that was our good news for the day. But it's time to take a little break. Okay, we're back. Now, before we continue, let me say this. If you enjoy your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews, don't we, Caitlin? We love them. We love them so much. So much. And we, I think about them all week long. And I, I think too. about how many people are leaving us ratings all week long, too. Yes. And I'm always <laughs> checking. And uh, every time we get a five-star review, it just brings joy to my heart. We love reviews so much. We're going to read some of our favorite reviews at the end of the show. So that's something to look forward to. But now... It's time to get into our groundbreaking interview, as promised. Caitlin, can you talk about how you found this person that we're talking to today? Since my grandfather recently passed, I've just been going through a grieving 
period still, you know, it, it there's no time limit. And I was thinking about guests for our podcast and I have always been curious about death doulas because I just feel like I'm such a mess when it comes to the concept of death and grief. Mm -hmm. And I've always been fascinated that there's a whole career out there of people that really like know about this stuff and help families and help probably people like me that aren't the best at dealing with grief or the thoughts of your loved one being gone and I just was always fascinated by that. And so randomly at like 10 p.m., I texted you. I was like, let's get a death doula. Yep. And so I just started researching online different death doulas. And I found this one. And she's had quite a lot of articles about her. And she just seemed super interesting in that we could learn something from her. Yeah. And I, in writing the questions for this interview, had a lot of questions right off the bat about what her work was. But then when I dove deeper, her life is very interesting, too. And it took a lot of turns. And we love the story of a woman who's pivoted several times. Yeah, and, and, and it's, has, it's such yeah. a unique career overall. It's always, I just, I can't wait to learn, like, how she ended up there. Yep. I don't feel like anyone as, like, an 18-year-old or, or, you know, is like, I want to be a death doula when I grow up. I, you know, I assume that she's had her own experiences with yep. grief and loss and, you know, so I'm, I'm curious to see how she ended up in this career. Let's dive in. Okay, everybody. Jill Shock is the owner of Death Doula L.A., she is a Los Angeles native with over a decade of experience in end-of-life care. Her core values are to honor and advocate for options and choice for all humans at end of life. She believes in empowering her clients to step away from the imposed traditions and negative stigma around death and embrace personal choice and style as the chapter of life comes to an end. A death doula is someone who serves as a navigator, advocate, and experienced professional for the dying and their loved ones. Death doula services range from pre-planning to after-death body care and home viewing celebrations. So, Jill, I am so glad that you're joining us today. Tell me, where are you? How are you? What are you doing? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. Where am I? I'm in Los Angeles, California. A beautiful sunny day, as always. And <laughs> how am I? I'm I am happy. I have to say that, which a lot of people wouldn't expect for someone who works around death and dying so much. I am a very happy person. And that's kind of what I want to get into. Before we started recording, I was talking to Caitlin about the negative connotations around death. And of course, there's so much grief and loss and just like turmoil at the turn of a new page. But there's so much opportunity to celebrate life as well. And I think there's much more to the experience than a lot of us think about. So before we start, I just want to talk in depth about what you do so that we're all on the same page, all the listeners. I feel like your work blends so many practices. But for our listeners, can you talk about exactly what your work entails? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of people 
think that my work entails being at the bedside of a dying person a lot. And yes, sometimes it does get that far and that deep, but a lot of my work is actually arranging logistics for people. Your advanced healthcare directive who speaks for you if you can't speak for yourself, which is actually a very important thing to have in order for every human being. And and talking about funerals in a way that's not super depressing, I guess. So a lot of my work is lining things up and then allowing space for whoever's experiencing their own death to be able to actually experience it and be present for it. A lot of what it's, it's, it's a lot like what birth doulas do for a birthing person, except my person is not birthing their transitioning. You mentioned that a lot of people think that you spend the last hours of life with people at their bedside. And I was wondering, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about what you do? I think, I think it's that whether or not I'm present. And I also think there's a big misconception that I'm some like goth (laughs) chick, like just kind of exploring, (laughs) you know, the morbidity of death. And it's really not like that. It's, it's exploring joy. It's exploring human beings. It's about who you are. And I really want to bring that out for your last hurrah, if you will. So now I want to rewind a little bit. As I always say in every episode, my favorite part of this podcast is getting to hear the stories of incredible women from the very beginning. And I understand that your father suffered from cancer when you were very young, and it made you very wary of hospitals and medical care. I don't think you could have envisioned in that time that you would be involved in end-of-life care. So what did you want to be when you grew up? What were you like? I was a very curious child. I'm an only child, but I spent a lot of time outdoors. I grew up in a house with a really big yard. And so I spent a lot of time kind of running around. And my ideal job when I was a kid, I wanted to be a travel writer, photographer for National Geographic. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yes. And I'm still like, I still think that's like the top notch goal for me. And you know, I wasn't very good at school. I wasn't like the most genius kid. I didn't really get good grades. I was pretty much always a a B student, you know, probably because I suffered from undiagnosed ADHD for a long time. Yeah, but I, that was the goal, National Geographic. And, you know, maybe there was a bit of escapism there because my dad was sick when I was young for many years. So you would go on many journeys with death in your life. At 21, you lost someone important in your life. The process was confusing and it felt like there was no one there to help you. Can you talk about this terrible journey and how it led to some enormous realizations for you? Yeah, so I was kind of on this, for women, there's often, I mean, at least when I was growing up, there's a set path, right? You go to school, you go to college, you meet someone, you get married. And that's what I thought I was doing. I mean, I didn't go to school right away, but so I was already kind of off the beaten path, but I, I met this guy that I was with for a long time, um, starting from when I was like 17 to 21. And it was actually his father that died. And it was the first time that I was in this mess of whoa, this is everything people go through when someone is 
dying, especially unexpectedly, because it was at that point very unexpected. So I just really saw the lack of help. I felt like no one was there to help us. And it just spiraled everything out. I lost that relationship, which is a good thing. But at the time, my whole world fell apart. And I was like living out of my car for weeks and just had no direction. That whole experience was like, left me with that question. Why didn't anybody help us? So I became the help. From that point, you went on to receive a master's degree in ethics and theology from Vanderbilt University, Vanderbilt University Divinity School, yes. and were trained and certified as a clinical chaplain, as a spiritual counselor. From yeah. there, you began to help people in the final days of their life, and you did that for over a decade. Can you talk about your early work and some of the that process of, because that's kind of where you were discovering who you were going to be. Yeah. You know, that discovery came because I went to college originally. Well, to be clear, I didn't go to college right off the bat. I was like, I'm going to move out of my house. I got to get away from my parents. I'm 18. I got to get out of here. I moved to San Diego, which at the time I was like, what's the most beautiful place I could live? And I worked down there. I worked two jobs just to pay rent, you know, back to back. And it wasn't until I realized that the people above me, my managers or whatever, the only difference between me and them was a college degree. So then I was like, okay, I'll go back and get the, I'll get the damn degree. Okay. Uh, (laughs) If you want it, I'll do it. And during my time in college, I really connected with art history. I was super nerdy and into it. I'm also an introvert. So that, that was a perfect career path. And so I used to actually work in museums. So I did artifact research and collections. I was like a little basement nerd and had my headphones on. It was just, everything was great. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it wasn't until that event that I told you about with that ex-partner that I totally changed career. And it was one of my professors at the time that's like, you know, you should apply to Vanderbilt. And I had no, no one had ever told me like, you can go to a good school, like you can succeed. And this was a female professor. She was a very empowering woman. Her name is Jennifer Bird. Um, She's still out there empowering people to this day. And so I applied and I got in and started my exploration of, okay, how can I help? There was a lot of existential exploring during that time. Cause you're in divinity school. You're in, you're talking about God, you're talking about philosophy, you're talking about ethics. Uh, so I did a lot of that and eventually got on the, the chaplain path so I could start counseling every day. So yeah. you wake up, you go to the hospital and you have a list of people that you're going to see and you just walk into their room and you talk to them. And it's, it's, it's incredible. Cause they're so Everybody, like the shield of vulnerability is just so down and we can talk human to human. And I just thought that was one of the most beautiful things. It is the most beautiful thing in the whole world. And then at some point, your father battled cancer again. And this time it was terminal. But also this time you were prepared to help him on his journey in a different way. Do you mind talking about what it felt like to be more prepared and like you were an experienced guide at this point. Yeah, which is probably worked against me, uh, quite honestly. So that happened in 2015. I had started my career in 2009. So yeah. I was already really versed in everything that can 
happen to people. And unfortunately, my dad fell into the category of people who have heartburn, go to the emergency room and come out with a terminal diagnosis, which is the nightmare for a lot of my clients. And then it became a nightmare for me. And I sometimes when I work, I play with this concept of what it means to have true empathy. And I think what that means is I've been there. I can say to people, I have been there. I can truly say that. And not that I completely understand exactly what people go through, but I now have been there, at least for the people who get short-term cancer diagnosis, which is a lot of my clients. And going through that with my dad was magical and horrific at the same time. We got to spend precious time together. My dad was a wonderful person. I hope that some people listening can say, yeah, my dad was a good a good guy too. Uh, that affects women a lot, right? How your dad is and how he treats you and what that person is like. So I was fortunate that he was such a good person. And we spent a lot of time talking about what it meant to be dying, what he thought might come next, uh, and then what was important to him during that time which a lot of times was fun stuff. Like we sell we got to celebrate his birthday while he was dying and he couldn't really eat, but on that day he wanted a root beer float and a gin and tonic. (laughs) (laughs) So we brought him this like root beer. He's like, don't tell your mom, like don't, don't tell mom that we're going to do a gin and tonic. So we like make him this gin and tonic and we bring it to him and he looks at the glass and he goes, where's the lime? Like we, we did this whole thing and all he could think is like, where's the lime? I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, dad, you're perfect. <laughs> so and I was, I was able to be there during his last breath, which I think is, I've seen a lot of people die, but again, I think it's one of the most beautiful things in the whole world to be able to see someone take their last breath just like it is to see someone take their first breath, which I've never gotten the chance to do. So I was there for that. And I was there for all the good moments, gin and tonics and all. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny. Like I thought you would have this armor around you because of the work that you do. But I realized that part of your work is acknowledging that there are some emotions that are just so powerful, you know, you can't defend against them and you shouldn't defend against them. Nope. Just let yourself be open. It's that's that being vulnerable. I've learned in this life is one of the hardest things you can ever do. And that applies to love that applies to friendship that applies to family that applies to death and birth. So, I mean, just, just be open. (laughs) So whatever comes your way. So you have like such a respect for this process. Unfortunately, not everybody does. Uh, You were working for a corporate hospice company at the time that your father passed and you had taken time off to be with your father. But then when you tried to return to your job, you found that it was no longer available to you. And yep. you began to set out on your own. Can you talk about this moment where like, I I want to know about this moment where you realized, oh my gosh, I can't go back to this thing that meant so much to me. What am I going to do next? Oh, it was probably an all time low in my life, right? Because yeah. 
I personally identify so much with my work. So here I've just lost my, my person at that time. Yeah. You know, my dad was my person. I have a partner now who I would call my person, but at that time I have my dad yeah. and losing my job and him at the same time really, really put me in a dark place. I was like, I'm just like a worthless human being. I had a moment in my life where I wanted to die. You know, yeah. I, I physically had to take myself to the emergency room and say like, I need help. Like something is broken up here in my head. I need, I need help. So I had to admit that, but it was after that and after doing some healing that I was like, forget about this working for somebody else. Forget about this corporate nonsense. I had already had many run-ins with authority. You know, I'm just always kind of been that kind of person who just never had an easy time keeping a job or following structure. (laughs) So, which I think a lot of women can probably identify with. And I was like, it took me a long time to figure this out, but losing that job and losing that structure was probably the best thing that ever happened to me, even though at the time it was the absolute worst thing. And, you know, it put me on all time low. But after that, I was like, no one can ever hurt you like this again, because you can work for yourself. Right. And that was like the ignition to start my own business because that was safe. And I think a lot of people need to hear that is working for yourself is actually a very safe option. No one can ever harm me. There's no corporate harm ever to come to me again. (laughs) Right. I want to double back and talk about that moment where you went to the hospital and said, listen, I need help. I think that is such a beautiful thing. I mean, for me, looking at you, the strong and experienced person that's done so much for other people, I think, you know, I think the obvious assumption is, oh, here's somebody that never needs to ask for help, that always has it together. And I think we need to get rid of that idea that anybody is that way. Like everybody has a moment where they need to ask for help. And the beautiful thing is to actually do it. So for our listeners, I just want you to to know that if you need help, strong, smart people ask for help. There's nothing yeah. weak about asking for help. No, it saved my life. Saved my life. So as you were starting out, what did your support network think about you striking out on your own and starting this business? Did you have a lot of people saying, oh my God, finally you're doing it? Or did you have people saying, you're crazy? (laughs) Lots of you're crazy. Lots of you're crazy. And because I was, you know, when I started this business in 2016, I think is when I officially filed for my DBA and all that stuff, um, doing business as for those of you who are starting out, (laughs) get your DBA. My business name has the word death in it. And it also has the word doula in it, which is two things that are just completely unknown and like very taboo, right? Right. So I was advised by many marketing professionals, do not put death in your business name. And I just had this feeling inside, like, no, that has to be a part of it. I want to be honest. I want to be an honest brand. Like death is here. If you are dying, I want you to know I support death. You know, and then doula, I mean, 
forget about it. It's hard to spell. It's a, it's an <laughs> ancient Greek word, you know? Yeah. So, and my friends and fam, my mom still doesn't understand what I do at all. And my friends have a hard time <laughs> with it too. Some of them really support like one of my best friends does my logo, like the psychedelic triangle, but some of them just still to this day, completely avoid talking about what I do altogether. Yeah. It's still, it's still a process. So I think I started getting support when I did an article in Goop. Like yeah. That's when people were like, oh, you're like legit. I'm like, really? Did it really take Goop for you guys to figure this out? But it did. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, what was your moment when you were like, I'm on the right track? Was it that moment you realized you were going for it? Or was there like, was there an experience that you had that you were that that made you think, yes, okay, I'm doing the right thing. I'm on the right path. You know, I've felt that for so long. I even starting, you know, with divinity school and going down that path of counseling people and just being there in those spaces. I have felt like I've been on the right track for so long. That feeling shines through. And I think that's a big message to a lot of young women out there is like, if it feels right, just stick with that Yeah. because that's the path to happiness. I work so much around death. I don't have time to not be happy. Yeah. Like happiness is everything. So you do what you love, be with who you love, act how you feel best, yeah. you know, just all of that combined. I was just, it's funny. I was just going to ask you, what would you tell young women listeners to think about as they went to their careers? And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Sometimes it's not a solution that you have in mind as far as like, I know what my career is, but you do have a feeling when you're on the right path and you just keep going one step at a time until you get there. Yeah. You know? And it's not pretty. I mean, it's, <laughs> you got to claw, you got to fight. You have to tell people no, this is how I feel. That's hard to do, especially for women, you know, because our feelings are often set aside as emotional or dramatic or, right. you know, with death, a lot of people think goth. And that's really not what I'm trying to bring to my brand. Even though my brand is very literally black and white, it's more of like honesty, vulnerability, and happiness. Like, let's yeah. bring joy into this space. We have to be joyful. What's one thing that you wish everyone knew about dying in this country that always catches people by surprise and that you is your number one thing that you're helping with people that they're blindsided by, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say two things, and this is kind of technical stuff, but number one, make sure you have a healthcare proxy that you trust. Okay. Um, this is, this is a huge deal in every state because if something happens to you, no matter what age health, you know, they're the clinical workers are going to be looking for that person to make decisions for you. Okay. So make sure it's a person you trust. If it's not your family, don't put your family down. And the default is family for those of right. you out there who are not connected to their families. So be very careful. The second thing I would say is that we have total freedom to reinvent the funeral. All right. So we don't have to go in a church, in a box, embalmed, in the grounds, in a cemetery. That is just shatter that image. 
we have every right legally and as humans to, after someone dies, not treat death like an emergency. Yeah. Take your time. You don't have to call a professional right away. Have the body at home. You can wash your loved one's body. Um, you can do the Irish wake, right? Where you right. leave the body and everybody comes to celebrate. And I love I love seeing that. That's one of my great joys of my work. Yeah. And then there's so many options around how you treat your body after death. So, you know, instead of cremation or burial, there's water cremation. There's full body burial at sea. You can become a reef to, you know, regrow the sea and do the coral reefs. You can become soil now, which is called a natural organic reduction. You can literally be composted as a human being. There's just so many things to think about, which I think a lot of people just see the embalmed body in the casket, in the coffin, in the grounds. And I just shatter that, shatter that. Do you often find that those kind of conversations haven't been had yet when you are working with families that they they didn't know that those were options and they haven't even been discussed yet? Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions where people just assume there's a path for end of life. And I think that's where they get you. When I say they, I mean the funeral industry. <laughs> that's, you know, they prescribe, okay, you have to come have your funeral here. The body has to come here. So just telling people that's, you you have choices. You don't have to do it like that. Now you've had over a decade of experience, well over a decade, almost 15 years. Am I right? Um, of end of life care, (laughs) 10 years before you started this business, which is now almost five years old, but death doula LA is still young. And I wonder where do you want your path to take you next? What's the future for death doula LA? The future for death doula LA, which took me a solid three years to make profitable. So if you're starting out, you know, it's going to be a struggle, you know, for the first few years to start your own business for people who are on the entrepreneur path. So don't get discouraged in those couple, those first couple of years. Um, and right now I would say Death to LA is really stable. Um, I'm helping clients. I'm also doing mentorships and this is a good place for Death to LA, but as my uh, creative director <laughs> put it, a death to LA is your first child. Uh, my like rough and tumble first child. <laughs> yeah. And so what we're expanding to is the brand called Aterra. And Aterra is actually going to be a place, Aterra, meaning like of earth. It can also mean golden earth. Um, yeah. But we, I'm working with an architect and a couple other good people to build a resort for people to come and die. So that's where I'm headed. That's a huge, that's a huge, huge, huge future. And yeah, huge step. And in the meantime, while we wait for a magical funder, (laughs) like an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates, um, (laughs) hint, hint out there. Uh, Listeners. Yeah. I'll pretty much just be doing this, you know, keeping death to LA level. And then I will turn that into community brands um, at the end. So I want other death doulas in LA to be able to come and be on the site and help my local community. I think 
that's a, that means a lot. Wherever you are, you know, your brand doesn't have to be global. You can really do a lot of good work just with your, you know, community. 10 mile proximity. Yeah. 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 That sounds incredible. So that makes me want to ask, what's the best way that people can support your vision? Like what, how, just by following you or what can we, what can our listeners do? Oh, I think following me is a good idea. If you, I think listeners can, should just really wrap their heads around death. You know, what is my mortality? What does it mean for me to be a human in this world? I did not ask to be born into this, but here I am, you know, conscious existing. Yeah. Uh, just, I think getting people to think about that is enough to inspire them to look deeper into what all of this is. Uh, and if there are any big fish funders out there, call me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, we have very active listeners. So, you know, <laughs> you may just find, we, we may just find the solution here. But I I, I want to thank you so much for talking about such a an emotional topic and for being so vulnerable. Um, it, it means a lot to me. And I think it will mean a lot to our listeners to hear about your journey and everything you've been through. So I want to thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And, you know, I really have to say, I am so inspired by drag. I just wanted you to hear that. And I've, I've never had the chance to talk one-on-one with a drag queen like this. So yeah, I, my friend, my dear friend, Anthony, little shout out to him because he's a huge fan, uh, <laughs> introduced me to the world of drag and it has brought me so much joy and to see the power of that feminine power come forth and be so empowering. I mean, I'm just, I'm, in, I'm so inspired by what you guys do. And thank you. Yeah. I, I hope that, I mean, drag could do many things, but I hope that one of the things it does is celebrate all things feminine and shattered the idea of what a, a woman can or should be. And that, uh, you know, no matter who you are watching, you feel like the idea of being a woman is expanded and not contracted. So Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's more than just being a woman. It's an energy. It's yes. a feminine energy, which I think we should all harness because it's so powerful, yep. but the way, you know, that RuPaul and, and you guys have played it out. It's, ugh, I couldn't be more thankful. It's like, I just, it's so good. You guys are a blessing. <laughs> well, Jill Shock, thank you very much. I cannot wait to see what you do next um, because we will be following along as we always do. Thank you. All right, Caitlin, that was our a very emotional, deep, groundbreaking interview for the day. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, I just find it interesting as someone in such a kind of like vulnerable and sad career path really opens it really opens her eyes to being happy yeah and joyful yeah when I feel like some of us in not as sad or emotional career paths can't find that you know right. what I mean oh my gosh it's so, so true it's just interesting to think about yeah and I also think it's interesting on the flip side of that 
how when she was going through experiences with death, like she was just as vulnerable as everybody else. Like yeah. she doesn't get a special magic power by being a death doula. She yeah. is, she needs people there for her at that time too. So anyway, let's take a little break and then we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. Now, before I continue, I want to say this again. If you liked your time with us today, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We love reviews. In fact, we love them so much, we're going to read some of our favorite reviews right here at the end of the show. Caitlin, do you have a favorite review this week? Yep, this one says, five stars. One of my favorite podcasts. I really enjoy the good news segment. Also, you've motivated me to stay on track with my reading goals. Thanks for the great content. Reading goals, Caitlin. Yeah, I have to make sure to stick to my I reading know. goals. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, but we're coming up on May, and I've got to <laughs> finish this book. Otherwise, I'm going to be behind in okay, my, you okay. know what I mean? Yeah, i gotta, yeah. got to put it together. So I know. I'm thinking I'm almost to my halfway mark of 50 books. Really? Yeah. I'm on like book 22 or oh, whatever. So I'm almost God. there. You're, almost to the halfway. You're a monster. <laughs> yeah. From here on out, I am going to stick to my goals better. We're only yeah. four months in. I have time to turn it around. Yeah. Caitlin, you're my inspiration. Um, And thank you for saying five stars because we love five star ratings. We love yeah. five star ratings. We love that. Uh, <laughs> and it's nice to hear that people enjoy the good news segment because yeah. that makes us happy to do this. Oh, oh very happy. <laughs> we love that. We love we love to intersperse our dog news with some other things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every once in a while. Anyway, enough about that. It's time for the credits. This podcast was produced by Caitlin Gretham, and then I did it. The cast includes me and also Caitlin, and it is distributed by the amazing Studio 71. So thank you for joining us today. Make sure to tune in next Monday for another exciting episode. And remember, if you ever feel down, all you have to do is look in the mirror and say, She's a woman! And I'll be with you. Oh my gosh, my my whole spirit is like, I need to meditate for an hour after that interview. Do you know what I mean? I know, yeah, it was, he- it was heavy. It was heavy. And also made me want to like, I don't know, be like go to divinity school or something. I know, you know I'm what like, I mean? <laughs> like career, really get in touch with it. Career path has changed. Yeah. <laughs> Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.